in the book of Job. And uh, we've been living in the storms of life. And uh, just to remind you of the story so far, we began all those weeks ago with the calm before the storm where that beautiful scene was, uh, was, was played out to us with Job who was the perfect man with the perfect family and all those sheep and cattle and uh, everything was great and the thing with, with, with Job, his, not only was his life great but his relationship with God was great, the two things were running in harmony and then we entered that strange scene in the heavenly courts where God has this conversation with the Satan character who suggests to God that the only reason Job serves him is because of the way that God has blessed him. And he suggests to God that if he removes all the blessings from Job's life, that Job will curse him. And so God says, well, let's see. And uh, all the great things of Job are taken away, his family, his uh, belongings, his home. And, uh, and then he's inflicted with this, uh, these incredible sores. And at the end of the passage, Job says, Blessed is the name of the Lord. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. And then we saw uh, that Job was an innocent man. That God said that he was innocent before all these things happened. And then we met Job in chapter 3, and it was a bit of a different Job after the storm. Uh, he was wondering why on earth God had allowed him to be born. And he was lamenting about the things that were going on and complaining to God out of the bitterness of his soul. And then three friends join him. And, uh, and they chat together about what's going on in Job's life. And, uh, and try to make, make sense about, uh, about what's going on. And the friends suggest uh, that it's all Job's fault and that he'd only repent of the terrible sins that he committed that, uh, that God would restore him once again. Uh, but Job's having none of that. He doesn't think he's such a bad guy. And, uh, and then this guy, Elihu, turned up last week. He was chasing the storm. And uh, he was angry about the three friends because they hadn't been able to answer Job's problems and questions. And he was angry with Job because he was questioning God and the way that he was controlling the world. But he didn't have any better answers than the friends. Uh, but one thing that we did say was the, uh, the passage in Elihu uh, that he prepared Job to hear from God. And uh, this week... Uh, we're coming out of the storm. And we're in Job 38 to 41. Again, quite a, a big chunk. And it, that was probably one of the longest readings we've had in London, wasn't it? Two whole chapters uh, of, uh, of Job, but it was uh, well worth listening to. And uh, finally, the sound of thunder. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what the, the book of Job has been building up to. This is what Job longed for. The fact that God eventually speaks out of the whirlwind. God speaks. Then the Lord answered Job, out of the storm. Throughout the conversations, one of the things that Job had been saying was, if only I knew where I could find him, that's God. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me. Job, throughout the conversation with, with the three friends, was saying, I want to present my case to God. I want to speak to God. I want God to answer me. And finally, Job gets his wish, gets what he's longed for, because finally, God speaks. The sound of thunder. God speaks. You know what this sign means by now? It's time for a storm warning. Because God speaks, but it's not what we expect. And I guess it isn't what Job was hoping to hear, or expecting to hear. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man 
I will question you and you will answer me. I will question you and you will answer me. Philip Yancey, he's the guy with the hair on the left. He says this about, uh, about the, the God's speeches. He says, what could God have said to Job? A few kind phrases, a smile of compassion, a brief explanation of what went on. Any of these, uh, Philip Yancey would have held to Job. But this isn't what God says to Job out of the storm. One of the things that God is doing when he answers Job is he's reminding Job of his place. He's reminding that God is much bigger than, than Job or any of us can really imagine. And uh, he's reminding Job, who remember is innocent. This is the one thing that we've been carrying through the story, that Job is an innocent. He's a great man in God's estimates, but he's still puny and tiny compared with the greatness of God. In his book, Wishful Thinking, Frederick Buchanan says about the God's answers to Job, he says, God doesn't explain, he explodes. God doesn't explain, he explodes. I quite like that. God doesn't explain, he explodes. Brace yourselves like a man, I will question you and you will answer me. You see, Job had been asking all these questions about God and now God's got one or two questions that he's going to put to Job. Somebody a lot cleverer than me has worked out that there's 77 questions. If you get bored during a sermon, you can count them if you've got a Bible. Somebody reckons that there's 77 questions that, uh, that Job puts to God. Question number one. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all 77. <laughs> Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? I was saying at the beginning that I didn't know everything. And uh, one of the things about Job is that he didn't know everything either. He didn't know everything. He knew quite a lot. He knew quite a lot about God, but he didn't know everything. And uh, in, uh, in God's speech to Job, he's going to communicate several things. We've already said that God is a lot bigger than Job or any of us can imagine. And uh, in the 77 questions that he, that he puts to Job, uh, first of all, he talks about Job's non-participation in creation talks about his non-participation in creation. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? He's saying to Job that you didn't partake in creation. I made the world. I created it. I order it. He talks to Job about the management of the world. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with the flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Job is saying, uh, God is saying to Job, he says, I'm managing the world, I'm in control. And then, of course, he takes Job on... Uh, on a trip to the zoo, really, and he talks about some of the uh, amazing animals uh, that God has created. And uh, some great questions, isn't there? You know, uh, do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? 
And uh, probably my favourite question. Uh, who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? You'd have to be a real ass not to know that one, wouldn't you? And uh, what God does is he, he takes him on this, uh, you know, on this nature tour around his animal kingdom, and he points out that there's lots of things uh, in the universe and in the in the animal kingdom uh, that Job knows absolutely nothing about and doesn't see. Uh, but God has got all these things in control. And H.H. Uh, H. Rowley sums it up when he says this, he says, God now intervenes. He does not so in order to resolve the intellectual problem, which has been the subject of the debate between Job and his friends, but to resolve the spiritual problem which lay behind the argument of both sides. The friends were persuaded that Job had sinned and therefore was abandoned by God. Job maintained that his sufferings were not the result of sin, but yet he was abandoned by God. The common ground between Job and his friends was that he was cut off from God. And his suffering was evidence of this. The effect of the divine speeches was to make Job conscious that this was not so. And that in his suffering, even though he could not know the cause, he might yet have the presence of God. So God speaks. The sound of thunder. God speaks. And he reminds Job that he's in control. But not only that, he, he proves Elihu wrong because one of the things that Elihu says was that you can't, you can't take your case to God. God's not going to speak to you. And God speaks to Job. Doesn't have to, but he does. He speaks to Job. So the sound of thunder. And then we learn about Job's silent blunder. Because in the middle of that God's speeches, all those three or four chapters, there's that little bit where Job actually answers God. He doesn't say very much. He says this. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. I like the way that the message version, uh, the paraphrase puts it. Uh, Eugene Patterson puts it like this. Job answered, I'm speechless. I'm in awe. Words fail me. I should have never opened my mouth. I know that feeling. Do you? I talk too much. I know that one as well. Way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. I'm ready to shut up and listen. I like that. Job is now ready to shut up and to listen to what God has to say. The silent blunder. You see, Job is innocent. We know that. God has said that from the beginning of the book. We were let into the secret. We know why Job is suffering. We might not be happy about it. We might have questions about it. But we know the reason for Job's suffering. Job and his friends don't know. But we do know also that Job is innocent. Job thought he was innocent. His three friends thought he was guilty. But God has spoken about his innocence. And God's appearance and speaking to him is proof of Job's innocence. But Job isn't perfect. He isn't perfect. Like many of us, you know, um, we actually think that we do have all the answers sometimes, don't we? And uh, how many of us have actually said, you know, when I get to heaven, there's one or two questions I'd like to put to God, actually. 
Anybody said that? Anybody thought that? I know I've said that at times, you know. I've got a few questions for God. When I get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him a few questions. He's, he's going he's gonna to have to answer this. And what we do when we say that, we know, we know we say that because we don't understand what's going on. But what we're actually doing is we're forgetting just how big God is. And we make the danger, you know, of putting our place, of putting God in a, in, in a different place. In the book, The Shack, uh, the character Matt gets his encounter with God when he's struggled through some suffering. And uh, in one of the, the conversations that he has, uh, God says to Matt, he says, judging requires that you think of yourself superior over the one you judge. When we judge someone, we put ourselves in a place higher than the person that we judge because we think that we know better. And the danger in some of Job's questions, there's nothing wrong with questioning God, but the danger was, and this is where we have another storm warning, is we have to be careful uh, that we don't make ourselves judge over God. Because if we do, we're actually saying we are superior, that we are, have more knowledge, that we have better understanding, that we know what God should be doing. Sometimes in our prayers, don't we? You know, you hear people and it's almost as if they're telling God what they think you ought to be doing. Uh, we don't. We ask, we plead, we beg. Uh, because when we stand in the presence of God, we need to remember ourselves. And the danger is, is that we end up putting God in the dock. And we place ourselves as judge and jury. And at times we do that. And people do do that. And sometimes for very good reasons. Because of the things that are happening. And Job found himself in that situation. In the book The Shack, what God suggests to Mac, he says, give up being his judge and know God for who he is. Then you will be able to embrace his love in the midst of your pain. I like that. Give up being judge and know God for who he is. Then you'll be able to embrace his love in the midst of your pain. And that's the place that Job comes to. In his silent blunder, he says, I've spoken once, but I, will, I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. He knows his place, Job. He was arguing with the three friends uh, because he could do, but when he comes into the presence of God, he realises that his arguments don't quite sound so solid and secure because he can't place himself above God, even though he doesn't understand what's happening. And that's one of the difficulties, because very often in life we don't understand what's happening, and we want to understand, and we think we ought to be able to understand. And so when we can't understand things, we get frustrated and annoyed and angry. And sometimes we do say, you know, we think that we could do a better job, because we'd do this and we'd do that, and we'd sort this problem out and we'd sort that problem out. But we are not God. And uh, many men have tried to place themselves in that position of God, uh, with terrible consequences. Job says, I've spoken once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. I'm ready to shut up and listen. And sometimes that's the position we need to put ourselves in. We need to shut up and listen to what God has to say. Because God's got a lot more to say. And uh, after the brief interlude, the God of wonder speaks again. That's the great thing about God. Uh, he doesn't stop speaking to us. He continues to speak. He speaks again. <coughs> then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. You see, the problem was, Job thought he was going to be questioning God. And of course, it's the reverse. You see, we can question God and God doesn't have to answer because he's God. But when God starts asking us questions, we better have some answers. We better be ready. 
Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. And then he talks about, look at the behemoth. If you wonder what a behemoth is, uh, some people think it's a, a hippopotamus uh, or some strange creature. And then he talks about, uh, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with its rope? And again, some strange mythical creature who some people think may be the crocodile. And what's that all about? What's all that about? Again, God's referring to these strange creatures. Well, really, saying to Job, you know, there are things in the animal kingdom, there are creatures that you may look at and wonder, why on earth did you create that? What's the purpose? And of course, Job or us cannot see any purpose in some of these creatures. And uh, David Kleins, in his commentary on Job, says this, he says, innocent suffering, which is Job, of course, is a hippopotamus. The only sense it makes, it makes to God, for it is not amenable to human rationality. Human innocent suffering is a hippopotamus. The only sense it makes, it makes to God, for it is not amenable to human rationality. Job never finds the reason why he was suffering. He's never told. And some of us may think that's a blessing. Some of us may think it would have been easier if he had been told. But God speaks again. God speaks again. And Charles Swindle talked about the time when he uh, went to a minister's conference. And at the front he talks about a sign at the front of the stage. And there were all ministers gathered there. And he says there's a sign at the front of the stage saying, Relax everybody, for once you're not in charge. And he says that was a great feeling as a minister to know that for once you could sit back and relax. And in a sense, this is what God is saying to Job. You know, you're not in charge. I am. And uh, what I call for you is to trust in me and put your faith in me. And that's easy when things are going well. That's easy when we can work everything out. It's not so easy when life turns a little bit rotten. And of course the challenge to Job and the accusation from the Satan was would Job still be able to put his faith in trust in God when everything was removed? And of course the great thing is is Job comes through his time of testing with flying colours. He succeeds. He proves the Satan character wrong. His faith in God was not based on the blessings and the comfort in life. His faith in God was based on his belief that God was for him. Even if it appeared at times that he was against him. That Job was going to put his hope in God. God speaks again. David Atkinson says, There is a pattern to the wild order of things that we could never have dreamed of. A pattern to God's world that we could never have imagined or dreamed of. And... Job cannot say anymore. He said all that he can say when he has the experience of God. When God speaks to him, he is silent. He has no more questions, no more accusations. In uh, James Jones, the Bishop of Liverpool, in his book, Why Do People Suffer? He quotes from uh, an anonymous poem called The Long Silence. And he says this, 
At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on the great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly. Not with cringing shame, but with arrogance. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young woman. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture and death. In another group, a black boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of each group. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light. Where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most. A Jew, a black boy, someone from Hiroshima, a horrible deformed arthritic, a Philidomai child. In the centre of the plane they consulted with each other. At last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. The decision was that God should be sentenced to life upon earth as a human being. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted and questioned. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured at last. Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the beginning, from the throng of the people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. I spoke once, but I will speak no more. Twice, but not again. The presence of God was enough for Job. And maybe it's enough for us. As we pause and reflect, we're just going to pray a song that reminds us that God visits us with his presence. Even in the midst of pain and suffering, God comes amongst us.